You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My. I'm Joe Records, and today I'm joined by Gary Baldwin, who is a partner in the healthcare group at Crowell Mooring in the San Francisco office, and we are going to talk about California regulations, specifically the regulation of managed care plans by the Department of Managed Healthcare in California, especially as it relates to risk-bearing entities there. Gary, to kick us off, can you give us just a little bit of a, a landscape of what what the overall regulatory scheme and structure looks like for, for managed care plans in California? Certainly, Joe. I think that's a, a good starting question. A little bit of background on this issue. There are two regulators in California that regulate the health insurance business. There is the California Department of Managed Healthcare, which regulates healthcare service plans. And healthcare service plans can include both HMOs and PPOs. And there's also the California Department of Insurance, which regulates essentially PPOs only. Generally speaking, if a insurer or health plan wants to enter into risk arrangements with providers, that's generally done through the Department of Managed Health Care rather than the California Department of Insurance. So take us take us back in time to sort of the, the early days of managed care. What did arrangements with providers look like from a regulatory standpoint going back to, let's say, the 90s? Starting with the 90s, it was a more open type of arrangement, so to speak, and there were a lot of risk arrangements going on. Generally speaking, if an entity in the 90s wanted to take global risk or sort of global capitation. That's where the entity is taking risk for both the professional and institutional components of healthcare. The Department of Managed Healthcare required such entities to get what was referred to as a a limited license. And a limited license allowed those entities to contract with other full service plans to take on global risk and and take global capitation. Back in the 90s, there were some some concerns and there were some entities that took on essentially too much risk and went into financial failure. As a result of that, there were a lot of individual providers that provided services that were left holding the bag, so to speak, and, and did not get compensated, which was obviously a big concern when the provide downstream providers don't get paid. What this did was it generated obviously concern with the legislature and the legislature ended up passing in 1999 what was called SB 260. And it was done really in specific response to that financial collapse. It created a moratorium on the limited licenses that the Department of Managed Healthcare was issuing. So the Department of Managed Healthcare could no longer issue those types of license for licenses for a period of time. And it also put um, solvency, financial solvency requirements on the term of art that's used as a risk-bearing organization, commonly referred to as an RBO, which are essentially medical groups and IPAs that take professional risk. So those medical groups and IPAs that were operating in this space were required to meet certain financial requirements, which basically is a a positive tangible net equity, which is really your your reserve requirements, um, positive working capital, 
certain claims payment requirements, a cash to claims ratio, and a, an approvable method of determining what's called IDNR, which is uh, incurred but not reported claims. So, so that was the landscape that those entities, RBOs, needed to meet those particular requirements. And, and, and that was those regulations became effective in 2000. And they were recently revised in in 20, I believe it was in 2019, to increase the the amount of reserve requirements that that those entities needed to meet. Previously, it was limited to just positive T&E, and now they're required to meet a higher level of T&E based on the level of enrollment that's assigned to them. In addition, one other quick point is the moratorium on issuing limited licenses did expire. Although the department did start issuing new types of licenses, they're they're now called restricted licenses rather than limited licenses. And there's some minor differences between the two, but essentially those types of entities can get licensed for taking on global capitation. So in the post SB 260 world, can you describe kind of what the typical risk arrangement would look like? In the post-260 world, those arrangements have changed somewhat. Obviously, if you're taking global capitation, you still need to get a license. And the Department of Managed Healthcare has consistently required that. But other types of arrangements have evolved. I guess probably one of the most common types of arrangements is a is a shared risk type of an arrangement, which can involve where a health plan can pay capitation, which is a, a PMPM payment to a medical group or IPA. And along with that, the health plan creates a risk pool to pay um, institutional claims. The, the money in the, the risk pool um, at the end of a particular reporting period, if there are funds left over in that risk pool, the the medical group or IPA can share in um, those profits, which is commonly referred to as upside risk. If there is a deficit, um, the RBO or medical group or IPA could be on the hook for the loss, which is commonly referred to as downside risk. Downside risk in these types of arrangements was frequently carried forward, so the medical group RIPA would not need to write a big check at the end of that particular reporting period, and which writing that big check could potentially put that entity in a solvency type of situation. Generally speaking, this type of arrangement passed regulatory muster. Also along those lines, there were self-funded arrangements that had similar types of arrangements in regards to institutional risk pools. So they would participate in this type of arrangement as well. Although in those types of arrangements, the the medical group that was participating in that type of arrangement would get paid or its providers would get paid on a fee-for-service basis rather than on a capitated or PM-PM type basis. So Gary, fast-forwarding a little bit, to, to mid-2019, I understand the, the DMHC kind of changed, promulgated a rule that, that changes the way that risk-bearing organizations are, are regulated by the, 
by the agency. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what that rule did and, and how things changed going forward to now? Certainly. I think that's a good question, Joe. In 2019, the DMHC, or Department of Managed Healthcare, promulgated a regulation related to general licensure. This became effective in John July 1st, 2019. What that regulation really did was expanded the types of arrangements that would need to be licensed by the DMHC. And what it really did was it focused a lot on those risk pool type of an arrangements, whereby a an RBO or a medical group or IPA would receive risk pool revenue, either upside or downside via the institutional risk pools. So if you were, so with this regulation, if you were taking what is called institutional risk, which includes that risk pool type revenue that I described previously, along with professional risk, you would need to be licensed by the DMHC. So, and that involves both arrangements with health plans and if a a risk-bearing organization or a medical group or IPA entered into a similar uh, arrangement with a a self-funded employer, whereby they were taking that type of global risk, as I previously described, they would need to be licensed as well. So it was really focused on the entities that were taking that global risk would need to get licensed by the Department of Managed Healthcare. What they did with that regulation, though, is that regulation included provisions whereby the entity that is subject to the regulations would need to get, could get either a license or they could get an exemption. The exemption process was not well defined in the regulation itself. So what the department has done on a more informal basis, although they have formalized it somewhat via a, an all plan letter that is published on the department's website, they are issuing automatic exemptions for the licensing requirement. So the, if, if you're subject to the licensing requirement, you can apply to the Department of Managed Healthcare and get an auto, automatic exemption, which is a process that essentially the entity, all they need to do is fill out a form, submit the contract under which they're taking this global risk, submit it to the department, and they will issue an automatic exemption, which is a pretty straightforward process. The department has also, they consider this process to be part of their quote-unquote phase-in process, and their phase-in process has been um, lengthy. It's it's been going on since July 1st, 2019. Now, the phase-in process will eventually come to an end, but what what the regulator is doing is they have already made statements that they are going to be revising this regulation and that the phase-in period is going to last until that revised regulation is in place. So the automatic exemption process is going to go on, at least in my opinion, for the, for the near future. Interestingly, in that all-plan letter that the regulator published, there's all, it also expressly states that CMS-based ACOs 
are not subject to the regulation. So it really doesn't exempt them from the regulation. It says, says that they're not subject to the regulation. So those types of arrangements are still not being reviewed or do not fall under this um, um, regulatory uh, framework. And as to when that the department is going to actually revise the regulation, Although they have stated that they're in the process of doing so, approaching the middle of 2022, and that process has yet to begin. Gary, thanks for that breakdown. Uh, If I could just ask you, based on your experience, to close us out here on this episode, can you give me just a little bit of a sight into what an entity should consider when when getting into one of these kinds of arrangements that would subject it to, to DMHC's process? I think one of the things that they need to really consider is to make sure that they have the capacity to perform all the functions that are required of it under the contract. And also potentially, since there is a a licensure requirement, that they could potentially meet those licensure requirements. The, The regulatory space in California, it's extensive and we have a regulator that it's a very active a regulator in regards to health plans in California. And entities need to make sure that they're ready for that kind of regulatory scrutiny. There's a lot of entities that are, and there are also a lot of entities that aren't. And if, and I think that each entity that enters these types of relationships needs to make sure that they have the capacity to perform their obligations. Well, Gary, I can't thank you enough for, for joining today and for, for sharing your insights about the DMHC regulatory structure for risk-bearing organizations. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.